0: Experiences of wonder can elevate us. They can actually expand our cognitive range and resources. They can elevate our mood and buoy our mood. But they also, as I suggested, disorient us. I also say wonder is a quiet disruptor of our biases that we, of course, have inherited. You feel
1: flat. Could you use more wonder in the workplace? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard. And today, our man full of wonderment and seeking meaning in wonder is Jeffrey Davis, author of Tracking Wonder, Reclaiming a Life of Meaning and Possibility in a World Obsessed with Productivity. Davis has been studying and gathering evidence for the power of a six-faceted wonder, which includes, nicely, curiosity and openness, but also bewilderment. He's going to share ways wonder might transform your work in life. But before we dig in, what exactly is wonder, Jeffrey?
0: Well, I'll start off by saying wonders are human birthright, and that's what I've come to discover in my body of work and research that's been corroborated now by evolutionary biologists, anthropologists. I've really come to understand that sort of a non-romantic language wonder is this heightened state of awareness. It's like instant mindfulness that's brought about by something completely unexpected that either delights us or disorients us or both. I was taking a walk around our pond today and I came like not 12 feet from a raccoon, a very large raccoon, which was surprising, particularly during the day. So it can delight us or disorient us. It could be something an irritating coworker suddenly says that lets you see them in a new and beautiful way. That's a moment of wonder. Or it could be how the pandemic has completely disrupted so many of our jobs or relationships and calls into to question some big assumptions about what we thought was true about our identity or what really matters. So that's kind of where I start. Yeah, that's a starting place.
1: Okay, that's a perfect starting place because the fact that I think you mentioned a little bit, you gave some positive valenced ways in which to look at wonder, but then you talked about some things that maybe you kept you mentioned a couple times disorienting so i'm i'm wondering just in kind of the verbiage on the website and the talking about the book and the company and the work you do on there it seems like it's sort of wonder is put up against what i think is a more utilitarian view of like productivity efficiency if you're talking about wonder these could be bad things and good things that could be brought about by this feeling of wonder and i think in general people in the workplace would like to avoid the bad things and seek just the good things and it sounds like maybe wonder plays in both pools
0: Oh, completely. It plays in both pools. And without going into too much about the difference between positive and (laughs) negative emotions, really, in psychology and how wonder seems to cross over between both a positive and negative emotion, wonder does play in both spaces because experiences of wonder can elevate us. They can actually expand our cognitive range and resources. They can elevate our mood and buoy our mood. But they also, as I suggested, disorient us. They I also say wonder is a quiet disruptor of our biases that we, of course, have inherited. And so for a fleeting moment, wonder can disrupt our biased perception, our biased default view of what's right around us. So we can see again what is real and true and what is beautiful and possible. And that could be about ourselves, about one another, about the future or about the ordinary world just around us
1: a lot of what you said sounds like it could be centered. You did mention COVID and the changes that happened there, and that feels like it could bleed into the work world. But a lot of what you talked about, I think, are things people think about their own internal world and their own personal life. Maybe could you talk a little about, kind of hear your wonder origin story and how whatever things you've learned from looking at wonder just with human beings, then translating that into the world of human beings at work. So kind of where's the origin story for why wonder now isn't just, you're not out there just being a random person talking about wonder in all aspects of life, but in some ways kind of centering into how people work in their professional lives.
0: Yeah, I love that question because my orientation toward deliberately pursuing and researching experiences of wonder didn't start expressly in the workplace. So my origin story kind of begins (laughs) really when I was a toe-headed boy climbing trees, making up imaginary worlds in the woods and in (laughs) words on the page, really. And I've sort of tracked that now in retrospect, but it was while completing, first of all, while completing another project in 2004 that I came across references to wonder as this key element in the creative process, which has been my ongoing interest and curiosity. And even within certain wisdom traditions, both East and West would reference experiences of wonder. So for the next four years, I set off on this research journey and the applied research journey, meaning I was testing out ideas early on in workshops and trainings in very rough, loose forms. But it was really, to your point, one summer, just a few years after that, that the project really started to take on higher stakes and sort of what are the applications uh, for the people I'm working with and people at work. And that was within a matter of months one summer, I contracted Lyme disease and a lightning caused fire just like three weeks later, really decimated our house, uh, destroyed 300 volumes of books, 20 years of archives, melted my computer's hard drive sort of pre-cloud Fortunately, my wife and I survived physically unscathed, but we'd be out of our dream home for the next 15 plus months while we actually had our first baby along the way before we could move back in. And so it was in that period of like one adversity after another that I got curious, both about adversity and wonder. And so I sort of set off two questions to live, both for myself and for others. So it's a very healthy way for me to get curious – both about my own life and start applying practices, but also to think outside of myself. So I started really getting curious about how do people, particularly what we might call fulfilled innovators, flourish more than flail amidst an challenge and change, because we all experience challenges and change. Why do some people keep moving forward, ultimately flourish more than flail? And what does wonder have to do with it, if anything? So. Wait, can I ask you one yeah, thing? Please. Because that's
1: that's interesting. Again, we started out with thinking about wonder. Sounds like it's such a wonderful word. There's all this positivity to it. And now we've sort of identified you really got started on this when these really crappy things happen to you. Yeah. But then you, exter- right then, is your natural inclination always to externalize where you don't just think, well, I just had this experience. I wonder how other people face this. Because in that moment, why didn't you sort of close up and get defensive and miserable about these things? Did you find yourself brought to... You got curious and then wonder, well, why the heck did I get curious after these really crappy things happened to me?
0: That's a really great question. I'm not sure exactly why I do that. Uh, It's in part my disposition. But I will say personally, what was happening at the time too is some of my friends either would say, oh, It'll all be fine a year from now. You'll be so glad this happened and, uh, you know, I'd want to smack that friend. You know, your house will be better than it was, which it was. But I was like, I don't need to hear that right now. And on the other hand, some people would say, wow, what's the story here? Like, why did this happen to you on some, you know, like like it was personal that lightning struck. And I didn't want to create too much of a story there either. So I do two things, though, amidst adversity. I do go deeply within I was saying to myself, literally, I can remember saying to myself, oh, you know what? It's one thing to be teaching tracking wonder experiences when things are all going well. But, oh, now here's where the real practice begins. So that's where I went. And yes, I do externalize. I write for Psychology Today. I research in part to corroborate my own subjective experiences. And because I work with so many different people, I want to check some of my own assumptions when I'm advising or consulting or coaching people that I'm not just projecting my own experience. I'm trying to widen my perspective on the question. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. So then now I get to ask the question,
1: which I think probably is where you're going. You have these experiences in this short period of time, and you get curious about what happens with how creative people are able to weather these difficulties in a different way. So what kind of overall did you learn about people when you went digging into this?
0: I love that. So I really refined my research in three areas. Okay, You can imagine three overlapping circles of the science of human flourishing, the science of mindfulness, and the science of creativity and innovation. And so I researched, interviewed, worked with Thousands of people I would call fulfilled innovators or sort mm-hmm. of exemplary and everyday geniuses of creativity. And so a few things I discovered. And one is this, that beyond grit or willpower or the proverbial 10,000 hours of deliberate practice or even some genetic DNA, these people have in common an abiding sense of wonder or the capacity to always track these experiences. Not that they're always like in Peter Pan Wonderland all the time, but they manage to do this amidst adversity. And there are three areas of what we might say benefits that correlate when we consistently reflect upon, share, and actively track these experiences of wonder. One, we're able to face inevitable challenges with more creativity than reactivity. Two, we build what do we call a tender resilience and fortitude amidst uncertainty and adversity. And three, this seems profoundly important for our times culturally, we actually deepen our bonds with other people, both our familiar loved ones and friends, as well as strangers. You know, thinking about our audience, this likely has profound implications for veterinarians, Developing the relationships both with animals and the human beings who care for those animals and implications for people working within small businesses and hospitals.
1: My initial impression from the very beginning when we talk about uh, wonder, so I experienced that personally, but I think you're talking about these the creative folks we think well you know what it's someone else the creative people are Mm. the people who take an internal emotion or a special experience they have and they bring it outside of themselves and then that's they become great they become great speakers great leaders great doctors or great artists great actors But the regular folks are wonder stuff. It's that internal thing. It's like the person who, I have a friend who her favorite thing to do on, when she gets off work and go on the weekends, she goes to her house. There's a little pond slash lake back there. She sits out with the sunset. Now she doesn't talk to people about what a wondrous experience this is. So it's all kind of an internal thing. So I think it's interesting. I wanna ask about where this internal wonder that people might sympathize with and feel, Does everyone, when you went out researching about how people use or experience this, when does it become a thing you join with other people in talking about or experiencing together? How does it play into sort of what you said that last part, which is making connections with other people?
0: First of all, I love that. I I love that you've acknowledged sort of the everydayness of people who experience wonder. So just as a side note for your audience I define creativity not in the province just of poets and painters, per se, but (laughs) of all of us who are actively working with and tracking new and useful solutions to problems. That could be like, how do I make meetings suck a little less? (laughs) You know, how could we deal with this human resource conflict in a new and useful way? Right. So if you have problems at work and you're one who is like actively wondering, huh, how could we do this a little better? You're being creative by definition. But I love that you also allude to the fact of this person who just naturally goes to a, you know, a pond nearby every day. This is a biological instinct we have in us that, that again, evolutionary biologists now are confirming. That we are naturally drawn toward external stimuli that awakens something in us. But of course, this can be deadened in us for a variety of reasons, both personally and culturally. Now, I just want to come back to what I think was your question Yeah, and I want to say, I think my question
1: is predicated on it. I think it's a confusion. When I see the word wonder, I thought, you know what that is? That's a noun. That's wonder. Mm, But mm. I think you're talking about wonder as an active verb, wondering as well. So that's, I think, part of my fixation. I got stuck on awe, like, oh, wonder. It equals awe. I get that.
0: I want to say, though, it's both. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wonder, (laughs) when we think of wonder as a verb, we're also moving into curiosity, which is not the same thing. But wonder, being in State of wonder, having an experience of wonder is the nounness, which, you know, again, I want to say it's our birthright to actually have this experience of wonder and actually, in part, see the world through the lens of wonder.
2: Today's show is brought to you by VETEX International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions, a poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair, help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar or apply, visit vetexinternationalcom forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two.
1: Now, I do want to think about so both the possibility of having a personal experience of wonder at seeing something and and then becoming curious about it and wondering how that transforms or how that ties into relationships with other people. Is it simply just wondering and being curious about others or is it far deeper than that?
0: Oh, it's much more deeper than that. Yeah, maybe this would be a good time. So in part of my research, I did not set out to define and articulate six facets of wonder. But this okay. did come out of my research. And uh, over many years, and then my editor and I were kind of going through some of my work. And so you can imagine wonder as this multi-sided gem, so to speak, with different facets. So I've identified six facets of wonder. And I, I wrote this book, Tracking Wonder, in part to give us a shared language of possibility to give us a shared language of possibility that might keep us buoyant and keep us from surrendering our dreams for a better world, whether that's personally or for the more than personal. So the six facets, and we can go through them, but two of them are germane to your question. Mm -hmm. The first two are openness and curiosity. So this is probably what we most often think of when we think of wonder. Openness is that wide-eyed sense of wonder that we must foster when we're starting off on a new endeavor or even a, a new day for some of us curiosity is this playful proactive facet of wonder that invites us to pursue discovery to learn by doing and to raise more questions than always to seek certain answers and both openness and curiosity when we actively foster them day in day out allow us to approach challenges more creatively than reactively. And the second pair is where we get into the disorienting part, bewilderment and hope. So bewilderment is this disorienting facet of wonder where we learn to fertilize more than pathologize confusion. If we think about how confused we've been for the past two and a half years, there might have been moments when the confusion actually led to a new beautiful sense of possibility. And might have helped you reach some breakthroughs by virtue of your ability to stay in that confusion. Hope is not passive wishful thinking, but a a buoyant feeling of possibility amidst crisis that can point us toward a better future. And both bewilderment and hope really build this resilience and fortitude I alluded to. Now, to your question then. Yes. The third pair of facets, and this is where I felt like... When I was really further developing this work, I was like, oh, this is like the most important work of this body of work, (laughs) which is about relationships. And it's the social dimensions of wonder. And this was probably surprising to me as kind of an introverted person. And that is connection and admiration. So connection is the facet of wonder that teaches us how to bust our biases towards one another so we can sync up and support one another. So let's really dive in here a little bit, because this is in part your question. We have inherited a number of biases that help us get by day to day. Part of those biases, and part of what some psychologists call our adaptive unconscious, um, tends unconsciously to categorize objects and things. So you don't have to remember, thankfully, every morning, oh, this is a doorknob oh, I turned this and opened the door. It's like not everything is new to you every day. Thankfully, you can get by. But we tend also consciously and unconsciously to box in one another. If you're at any team meeting or you work with somebody long enough or you live with somebody long enough, you know that you tend to build what I call a bias box with those people. So part of the work of connection in tracking connection as a facet of wonder is learning how to identify quite often your unfair bias box toward one another and then to engage in certain practices that I can unpack for you Yeah, that I teach and train managers to do, especially leaders to do particularly and team members to do with one another. Should we unpack that a little bit?
1: Yes, actually, because I am curious that what you're talking about there about those biases so let's think i mean sort of the generic veterinarian many start with a just a a deep a deep inside love for animals and they want to heal and help these animals and then they go through a very rigorous science-based medicine focused curriculum that encourages them to be solution finders so everything is a problem and you must find the solution which i think thinking of everything as a problem I'm curious how that will play in because I think in some ways that might close your thinking down so that everything looks like, again, everything looks like a problem and that openness you talked about is not there. So I'm absolutely curious wherever you want to go, because that's where I'm thinking of people who maybe especially as they get tired, stressed, exhausted, they have too many people pushing on them in this workplace situation. I think the openness in places and the willingness to be able to uncork those biases shuts down because they are so busy.
0: That's such a good point. There are definitely a couple of a couple okay. of points there, right? <laughs> okay. One is you've touched on. There are a number of studies that the more formally educated people are, the higher their confirmation bias.
1: Okay, makes sense. <laughs> uh, that confirms my bias about the confirmation bias. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: And that we become more adept at rationalizing, believing what we want to believe. We, we become more adept at ignoring. Anomalous information, data, and knowledge that might yes. go against what we want to believe. Now, problem solvers, and I definitely have been one and can still be one sometimes, you're you're absolutely right. Sometimes going into a situation with, it's my role to solve this problem and provide certainty to the steward of this animal and to care for this animal can shut off problem solving. There have been some studies, even particularly with doctors, in how prone to closure doctors are. And sometimes this is in part, not just by the business, but really by the social expectation and pressure put on by doctors Very to true. come up yes. with a solution. Right. And so I have great sympathy for doctors and veterinarians in these situations. However, you're right. There is an openness to experience that veterinarians can foster to be open to some other possibilities, to be in the habit more of raising questions and holding off on coming to closure instantly, which might, of course, lead to some innovative idea or some innovative solution rather than just fixing the problem in the known sphere. This also happens, though, with one another, with each other. When we become so transactional, right, and we're interacting only to solve some problem, Yes. we forget the humanness of one another, And we ignore our biases toward one another. We ignore our judgments toward one another that may actually be getting in the way of some friction, maybe creating some friction at the workplace. So, and this can be challenging for highly accomplished leaders and managers, but one of the practices uh, we train people to do is actually when you're in an encounter, particularly maybe an intense encounter, the veterinarian walks in the dog or the horse is profoundly ill. One of my clients is the owner of an alpaca farm with multiple animals, right? (laughs) She she gives me the veterinarian stories and she's a big fan of veterinarians, of course. So I, I have a sense of what their reality might be. We train them to say to themselves, open up instead of size up. Open up more than size up. Open up more than size up. What this does is actually activating other regions of the brain to just pause in the moment and to say to yourself, I don't have to come up with the instant solution right now, or I need to see this person right now and perhaps ask more questions. The second thing we actually train uh, professionals and managers to do and team members is, now this is going to sound a little odd, particularly okay. for, for the science-minded <laughs> among us, and I'm very science-minded, but I also go beyond that, is to listen with your feet. Now, that will sound odd. Until you think about when you're in a situation where you think you're being asked to solve a problem, and you ask a question instead of just listening for what you want to hear, or sometimes when you think you're listening to somebody, you're really thinking about what you should say next, instead of fully listening, when you divert part of your finite attention to your feet, so to speak. It's shown to be you're much more receptive to receiving perhaps some new data in the moment and to actually really receiving the person in the situation that you're amidst, if that makes sense. And then third is to be curious, to really be genuinely curious and ask questions. This will disrupt your default tendency to come to any problem or situation with your own set of biases. I hope that makes sense. So open up more than size up. Listen with your feet. Be curious. That's perfect because now I always
1: love asking people the first roadblock problem. So now I can imagine, okay, first problem, I am busy and you are asking me in all these, it sounds like you're asking me with all these instances to disregard my years of I've seen these cases a thousand times. I've seen this kind of client a thousand times. I've had a receptionist who said this before, and it's just as you said, it's an inclination to, there is an efficient way to jump. We don't have to go through this whole listening thing. I can jump over this, I already know what the answer is. And you get rewarded for that because you move faster and you feel as if you're helping more people and saving more animals. And in some cases you are, the faster a doctor moves, sometimes the possibility may be that the doctor is able to help more people during that day. Is there anything from the research pushback of, I think I'm more efficient. I think it's quicker to move faster. I think it's quicker to figure this stuff out and not work through it every time.
0: It's not an either or, right? Okay. So there may be certain situations where, where, I wanted you to where efficiency <laughs> and emergency is needed. And I'm going to give you a very interesting situation okay. where one stayed open and curious amidst a dire emergency. However, let's think about the inefficiency of trying to solve a medical problem quickly. And it's the wrong solution.
1: <laughs> okay, right. This right? Uh-huh. Right? Yes.
0: <laughs> it, it happens a lot. It happens yeah. more than we want to admit. And it's profoundly... Inefficient. So taking less than five minutes to do what I just suggested. It's not a big expenditure of time and could lead to new neuronal pathways in a very well-educated, highly accomplished professional. But let me give you an example that I, okay. I just found fascinating when I interviewed Christian fracassi in Italy. So Christian is a civil engineer with a PhD in polymer science plastics, and he lives in a part of Italy where the pandemic broke out in early 2020. As we'll recall, it really did spread through parts of Italy. And a local hospital needed a special valve for respirators to keep their patients alive, but the manufacturer couldn't meet the demand quickly enough. And this is a really tiny valve that connects the patient to the ventilator. It mixes filtered oxygen with air, and it has to be replaced with every patient.
2: Oof, okay.
0: Yeah, it's pretty complex. And the hole uh, through which the oxygen diffuses is like less than a millimeter in diameter. So Fracassi and his business partner partner wanted to help with what they had, which was a 3D printer and their experimental mindset and curiosity. Their five-year-old company had only made kind of practical objects like bicycles and silicone bandages, not life-saving valves. Okay, right. that's pretty urgent right? But you can't just like rush in completely, right? And just, (laughs) you really have to be quick witted, but also open and curious. So they made a prototype. They weren't sure it was going to work, but lo and behold, the first one worked. And they said, could you make a hundred more? So they did so. They worked. And then they made the blueprint open sourced across the world in early 2020. It was downloadable for anyone. So I asked him how that felt to actually do that. I said, how did you get over the fear in the moment? He said, we didn't have time to be afraid. I had to override the fear that was coming up and just keep focused on the impact we could have. And I had to be ongoingly curious, right, about the situation. So I said, you know, how did that feel? Yeah, because we're told that learning, curiosity,
1: those things, we hear that those things are in opposition. Curiosity yeah. and openness to learning is in opposition to being feared and under in fear and under stress.
0: That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And actually fear can give rise to curiosity if you can harness it, right? Okay. So he said, you know, when people send us a message saying, thank you, A 100 people breathe. He said it was better than receiving the Nobel Prize, that he felt so alive and useful. And then support poured in from all around the world, financial support. And he said, you know, we've discovered that the world is big. It's a friend when you try to do good instead of just fixate on making money. So I give that example because it's such a beautiful example of somebody Placed in a situation that was urgent. He needed to be efficient. He needed to apply in a new context some of his expertise.
1: Is there one thing, if people are feeling deadened in their personal life or their professional life, and they're hearing about this curiosity and openness, they're feeling like, I don't know, maybe I feel, maybe primarily it's a feeling of feeling deadened or feeling stuck, or I feel like I'm answering the same questions all the time. That oftentimes happens to veterinarians or veterinary technicians who work in general practice and see the same kinds of cases all the time. It can get tiring after while doing the same thing. Is there one piece of advice you throw out to people who are like, if you're deadened to the job or bored to the job, or you're what do you throw out to people? Do you have one piece?
0: I do. I do. Oh good. <laughs> and I won't I won't go too complicated in it, but I will say, and this is an important practice again among CEOs, leaders, highly accomplished professionals, and the employees who just feel deadened to the job, which is We can't always control the external circumstances, but perhaps we could get curious about who we're bringing to work with us every day. And by that, I mean really checking the most profound set of biases that go unchecked, which is those biases toward ourselves. And so some of my research in the science of human flourishing, coupled with my background in Western philosophy led me to research how a lot of these people, including uh, Fracassi, whom I alluded to, either maintain or reclaim a connection with a part of themselves when they were young and felt alive and free to be at their best without necessary regard for reward. Now, in Greek, the word translates loosely to genius. It's this idea that we each sort of have a genius force of character. This is the basis a lot for what we call positive psychology, co-founded by Marty Seligman, who is deeply steeped in the same Greek philosophy I'm alluding to. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, philosophers like Aristotle really were literally some of our first psychologists until William James really developed that as a field in the United States. Aristotle was looking at his fellow people in Athens and raising the question, how do you live a good life? What constitutes a good life? And some of those lectures became literally some of the basis for a lot of studies in positive psychology. So back to your question, on a very practical basis, I ask people to mine some memories from their youth, to literally mine their memories from their youth when they felt free- and alive to perhaps express themselves uniquely without regard for reward. And what comes up, sometimes there's some pretty powerful memories and sometimes very deeply emotional memories because they think, oh my gosh, I've forgotten that part of me for a number of years. But we do certain things with teams. We help team members remember that part of them that we call their genius, and we help them recognize that part of themselves. I'll give you an example. My executive assistant did not consider herself creative until, of course, she started working with Tracking Wonder. And we like, <laughs> redefined it Like helped her see, oh my gosh, oh, that's creative? Like, yes, that's creative. So we do this exercise, actually, at uh, periodic team meetings. And she will say, and she gives certain memories of, of being a girl, and she said, you know, my genius really is about caring for other people. And it's sometimes pleasing those other people and in surprising ways. So how does that translate to her work? When I check in with her at the end of certain weeks and say, you know, what part of your work this week really lit you up and lit up your genius? She will identify those places where I took care of this client or I took care of you or, you know, I did this. And it's always people related, relationship related. And I know there are going to be parts of her work that frustrate her. So I ask her that question too. What part of your work frustrated you this week? And that helps me see that we all get frustrated with our work, but I want to make sure, (laughs) I want to make sure that's not overriding the genius parts of her work. Those questions also help her remember certain things like it isn't part up to me to keep bringing those genius traits forward to my work every day. And I can actually appreciate those parts of my work where my genius is activated. Now, the other part of this, I hope I'm not going too long here, but the other part of this is to get team members, leaders, business owners, veterinarians, to recognize those parts in each other. To take the time to actually put people first in the workplace is instrumental these days. So just by doing quick exercises or even check-ins with one another to recognize We each have genius qualities and genius character strengths we bring to the workplace. Can we actually recognize those in ourselves and each other? Creates a powerful workplace culture.
1: Want to learn more about practicing wonder in your practice? Visit trackingwonder.com forward slash podcast bonus. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.